asked you to attend a, an online meeting at, at, at two o'clock in the afternoon. And I was walking back upstairs about 10 to, 10 to two. And I just had this feeling, I don't really know what it, what it was now, but I had this feeling that I, I needed to, to sit down. My right arm went numb. Uh, out of nowhere, it felt a little bit like your arm does when you've sleep, slept on it uh, and cut the, the blood flow off. And I, I just thought that maybe I'd, I'd been sitting on it or while I was sitting there in bed that I'd somehow managed to stop the blood somehow. I, I don't know, I just straight away, it, it just, my instinct was that it was just pins and needles or a dead arm. I went to sit at my desk to, to start this call with a work colleague who were actually a client, so from a, an external business, uh, who I, d I don't know that well, I'd, I'd spoken to maybe a handful of times before. We started the call and I immediately felt like I needed to to make it clear that I was I was suffering some discomfort. It sort of progressed from that within, say, a few, you know, maybe 30 seconds to a minute, from numbness to then a lack of coordination. So I, I, I was unable to reach out and, and touch my mouse with my computer mouse. Um, so I was unable really to, to, to do anything that I needed to do because I, I am a right, I'm right-handed, so I'm right-sided dominant. And so I, I, I couldn't, I just almost started to feel a bit confused and a bit like, well, what's, what's going on? Why can't I make my hand do what it normally does? Hello, this is Mark Goodyear. Welcome to Stroke Stories. It's the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. Today we'll hear from Andrew Reynolds from Wigan. Andrew suffered a stroke at the age of 44. Before the stroke, I was actually living alone. I unfortunately went through a well, separation and marriage breakdown in 2020 during the, the pandemic, which is obviously quite a stressful period for everybody. But, you know, the stress of, of separation and divorce, you know, only compounded that difficult period. And since that time in, in, in 2020, I've been kind of trying to sort of rebuild my life and maintain and stroke re-establish my relationship with my daughter, who at the time of separation was was only seven. She's now 11. So we've spent the last sort of three, three and a half years just trying to to get everything back on track. So yeah, I was like I say, I was I was living alone. I um I work in IT for a, a medium-sized schoolware manufacturer. My role within the business is a, a business analyst. So I collect data and, and so on from PC and IT users about what sort of software uh, features and benefits they're looking for from their, their IT systems. And then I translate that for the more technical people within IT. And yeah, I can do all of that from home. I was already working from home a little bit before the pandemic, but and when that kicked in, I was working from home almost exclusively. Uh, I think I only went into the office maybe five or six times in a three-year period. So yeah, I was spending a lot of time on my own, living alone, working at home. It was just a, a normal day. My day, most of my days, is filled with online teams meetings with colleagues or clients from, say, software providers, that sort of thing. And I'd had my lunch. I, I tend to observe my my lunch break and have a, a decent lunch. And I think I've had sort of like half an hour, forty minutes of lunch, and then I was. Quite, quite a late lunch. I think it was approaching two o'clock in the afternoon and, and um, I decided to go back up to a, have a, an office at home, go back up to my office and, and carry on working. And I, I was due to attend a, 
an online meeting at, at, at two o'clock in the afternoon. And I was walking back upstairs about 10 to, 10 to two. And I just had this feeling, I don't really know what it, what it was now, but I had this feeling that I, I needed to, to sit down. No other symptoms really as such. I just felt like I needed to sit down. I felt like I'd rushed my lunch and hadn't had a break that day so far. So I just asked the person that I was due to meet if I could just have a, a you know, 10 minutes and join the call a little bit later, which was, was no problem. And I just sat down on my bed, uh, sat upright uh, on my bed, which was just next door to the, the, the office room that I work in. And all of a sudden, my my right arm went numb uh, out of nowhere. It felt a little bit like your arm does when you've sleep slept on it uh, and cut the the blood flow off. And I, I just thought that maybe I'd I'd been sitting on it, or while I was sitting there in bed, that I'd somehow managed to stop the blood somehow. I, I don't know. I just straight away it, it just my instinct was that it was just pins and needles or a dead arm, and that it you know, within a few minutes, it would come back to normal. And I didn't feel too panicky or worried to start with. Like I say, I'd never experienced that before anyway, so I didn't really know what to, to make of it. So I got up from where I was sitting, didn't have any other symptoms at all, no headaches, no dizziness, no pain really anywhere. And I went to sit at my desk to, to start this call with a work colleague who are actually a client, so from a, an external business, uh, who I, d- I don't know that well. I'd, I'd spoken to maybe a handful of times before. We started the call, and I immediately felt like I needed to to make it clear that I was I was suffering some discomfort. So I explained to to this lady that I was speaking to from a, a partner organisation that um, that I, I had some like numbness in my arm and and. Strangely, I'd only a couple of weeks before that I'd suffered a, an injury to the same arm on like a, a kind of assault course, an inflatable assault course that's in, in a uh, an outdoor pursuits centre near where my sister lives. And I'd, I'd overextended my elbow and thought maybe that I'd caused some nerve damage or trapped a nerve or something like that in my elbow. So I passed it off as as that. And I thought, you know, I, I'd hurt my arm. It, it had hurt for a it had been painful for a few days after the initial injury, and I just was sort of cursing myself, thinking I probably should have got this checked out at the time. So that's what I passed it off as. I didn't think it was any more than than that. I carried on with the call, but made it clear that you know I was suffering a bit of discomfort and and that my the numbness in my right hand might sort of slow me down a little bit with typing or whatever. But then it sort of progressed from that within say a few you know maybe thirty seconds to a minute from numbness to then a lack of coordination. So I. I I was unable to reach out and, and touch my mouse, my computer mouse. Um, so I was unable really to 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 do anything that I needed to do because I, I am a right I'm right-handed, so I'm right-sided dominant, and so I I, I couldn't. I, I just almost started to feel a bit confused and a bit like, well, what's what's going on? Why can't I make my hand do what it normally does? Is um, and I think the the person I was on a call with, we were on a, a video call. She could see that I was. In some distress and, and um, straight away said just to explain the symptoms to me that you're experiencing and she was very calm and she was quite insistent that I stop what I was doing and just focus on what was going on for me and um, so I explained what was happening and she said immediately that I need to call someone and she said not necessarily a, an ambulance or 
somebody medical, but somebody close to me that could be with me quickly. And I felt at that point like she knew more than me about what was happening to me. And uh, I've since found out that she she did know a little bit about stroke symptoms and she was trying to urge me to act without wanting to worry me. So I called my partner, who at the time was living separately to me. So she was also working at home about 10 minutes away from where I live. And without trying to worry her again, I just said, I think I need you to come and be here because uh, something's happening. I've had a bit of a funny turn. That's the only thing I could think to call it at the time. And I'm being told that I need to seek medical help. So she straight away got in the car and, and the, the lady I was on the team's call with stayed on the call with me until she was convinced that, that there's somebody that was on, on the way to me. Andrew called 111. They started going through the sort of diagnosis process. It, it didn't take that long to get through, actually. They started to ask me to like what, what symptoms I was suffering. They started to ask me to do some very basic movements with my arms and see whether I could maintain control of, of my arm and coordination with my arm. And they initially thought the same as me, that maybe it was just a, a trapped nerve and maybe not to get too worried. But as soon as I started saying that it, it was a, a case of uh, I couldn't really determine where my hand was in time and space, I could see where it was, but it didn't feel like it was anywhere. It felt like it had completely gone. That was when they said, I think that this might be more than nerve damage. So they immediately put me through to the emergency number. And I then went through the same process of explaining my symptoms to somebody on the emergency phone line, who then told me in no uncertain terms to go straight to A&E. So by this time, my um, my partner had arrived. She'd been there and, and had listened to that emergency phone call with me. And we had to completely rearrange our, our afternoon. It was, like I say, it, it started at about two in the afternoon. But these sort of conversations take a lot longer than you expect them to. And, you know, you're sort of waiting on hold for some time as well. That, that by the time we established that this was a, an emergency situation, uh, it was it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. So two, two hours had already passed by this point. And I was due to be having uh, a birth or pre-birthday meal with my daughter, my parents, my partner and her daughter. Um, so that they, those people were all sort of starting to congregate at the house while all this was going on. And I was trying my best to kind of shield, particularly my daughter, who, who was only 10 at the time. Um, and I, I just didn't think she needed to know at that stage what the potential situation was that was unfolding because one of her friends at school, uh, the parent, uh, the mom of one of her friends at school that had recently had a stroke. And so she was very familiar with that term. And I, I didn't want to worry her if, if it if it didn't turn out to, to be a stroke. So, yeah, I very sort of tactfully explained to my parents without making it clear to my daughter that, you know, the, the, the evening isn't going to be going the way we thought it would and that they should probably take my daughter away somewhere, maybe give her some dinner separately and, and that we'd just have to explain to her that I'd hurt my arm and she already knew about the pain that I was, I'd suffered 
two weeks prior in my arm. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a surprise to her. And I just explained that I needed to go and get it checked out by a doctor. So she got taken off to a, a dance class that was happening later on in the evening. My parents took her off there. My partner's daughter went to her grandparents' house and myself and my partner got in the car and, and, and she drove me to the local accident emergency in Wigan. And actually, we, we didn't even park in the hospital grounds because we were still very much under the impression at that stage that stroke was the absolute worst-case scenario. We thought that I'd suffered some nerve damage and that the medical people were just, you know, they were just a precautionary thing. So we parked the car probably about 400 yards away from the hospital because it's impossible to find a, a parking space within the hospital grounds anyway. So we parked on a side road, like I say, about 400 yards, half a mile away, and, and I walked into A&E. And we were in A&E from probably about 5 p.m. So like I say, this is now three hours after the initial onset of, of symptoms. I waited then in A&E for another four hours. So by the time I got to see any anybody that could give me a diagnosis, seven hours had passed. I was becoming increasingly anxious because the symptoms in my arm were worsening by this point. I, I'd lost almost all coordination by now and had you know zero sensation and control. There was some strength still there, but I was unable to control that strength. I didn't know how hard or soft I was gripping things or squeezing things with my hand. And so I was having to sort of hold it almost in like a, a sling position with my other hand just so that it didn't get damaged or, you know, injured because I was, I found out I was getting it trapped behind things without realizing like trapped in a doorway or trapped down the side of the chair that I was sitting on without even noticing it was happening. So yeah, I was becoming increasingly anxious. And then when we eventually got seen by the A&E doctor, I was given a brain scan, so CT scan, and probably I say within half an hour of that scan being done, they explained to me that I'd had a stroke. Coming up, Andrew talks about his exercise regime. I was quite physically active. I've always played sport my whole life. I was a keen footballer and cricketer, walking, running. I've done 10Ks. I used to run 10K twice a week in my 30s and early 40s. I've done, you know, things like Tough Mudder and half marathons. And so I, I just didn't see myself as somebody that would suffer a stroke. And trying to return to normal. One of the things that they wanted to make sure of is that I was able to, to get home and be able to do some very basic things like wash myself, make myself you know, a simple meal. They were very keen to understand the way my house set up and my, my, my life set up as well because the fact that I lived alone they weren't keen for me to come home at all at that point when they found that out. Let's hear how Andrew initially reacted to being told he'd had a stroke. I think what I was expecting is that maybe I'd had a TIA or some sort of mini episode because I've heard of that more recently in, in younger people. And I didn't for one minute think that I was the, a, a typical stroke victim. I hate to use that word victim but um yeah that that was what i thought because ironically only 
two months before the stroke happened, I'd been to a, a clinic locally that was a sort of a, a local initiative where they, they were giving people free access to a cardiovascular test to, to check the, the risk uh, factor for them personally related to stroke. So I'd been through this stroke check in April of this year and came out with a clean bill of health and I was told I was in the absolute lowest possible risk category because, you know, I've, I've never smoked. I drink alcohol and, and I have drank a, a lot more in the past, maybe when I was younger or as a student than I do now. Now, you know, but prior to having the stroke, I was probably drinking a couple of units a week at the most. You know, I, I don't drink a lot. Like I've already mentioned, I was quite physically active. I've always played sport my whole life. I was a keen footballer and cricketer, walking, running. Uh, I've done 10Ks. I used to run 10K twice a week in my 30s and early 40s. I've done, you know, things like Tough Mudder and half marathons. And so I, I just didn't see myself as somebody that would suffer a stroke. And so when, when I was told by the doctor that I'd had a stroke, I, I, I was in denial initially. I didn't, I didn't believe it. I, I was already planning what I was going to watch on TV that night. But, you know, it suddenly became very clear that I wasn't going home for quite a number of days. And, and that's what happened. I was in Wigan A&E, but they very quickly made it clear that they couldn't treat me because they don't have a specialist stroke unit. So I had to be blue-lighted late at night. I think by the time they actually put me in an ambulance, it was probably about 11 o'clock at night. So I was sent to Salford, uh, which is a specialist neurosurgery and, and stroke unit about 20 miles away from Wigan. So I did that journey alone in an ambulance with uh, with the paramedics. And at that point, I, I just, you know, suggested to my partner that she should go home because there's not really a lot she could do stuck in Salford on her own, you know, 20 miles from home. So I, I just felt like it was best that she went home and tried to get some rest. And I understood that she wasn't going to get any sleep. Uh, I don't think anybody was. But, you know, at this stage, we'd already explained to parents, siblings, you know, anybody that needed to know that I'd suffered a stroke and that, you know, it, it wasn't anything like nerve damage. And so I, I just wanted my partner to be nearer to those people than, than, than me so that she could seek support from them. Andrew underwent a successful operation. The recovery started in, in hospital, actually. So I'm sort of quite a determined and, and tenacious person. So I knew very little about stroke but I knew enough to know that the sooner I started to use my arm again uh, the sooner it would respond and, and improve and, and recover so I didn't wait for the physio I knew that I was due to, to see physios in hospital before coming home and then again uh, there would be a treatment plan for me once I got home but I didn't wait for that I started straight away as soon as I could feel any sort of movement which was on probably day two I think there was a, a slight bit of movement in my arm and hand. Once I saw that happening, I, I just kept on trying. I just started to lift my arm, started to do very basic movements, like hold on to a, a, a plastic water bottle and pretend to sort of pour water out of the bottle with it and pretend to hold it up to my mouth to drink from it and just to do these very basic arm, elbow, hand, wrist movements. 
I didn't know whether I was doing the right thing, but I figured doing something was better than doing nothing. And then, like I said, then the physio treatment kicked in partway through my hospital stay, probably about halfway through on say day three or four. And then they took over and they established that I could walk and uh, balance and you know, because what one of the things that they wanted to make sure of is that I was able to to get home and be able to do some very basic things like wash myself, make myself, you know, a simple meal. They were very keen to understand the way my house set up and my my the life set up as well because the fact that I lived alone, they weren't keen for me to come home at all at that point when they found that out. So we very quickly had to make some decisions about how we were going to manage that and. There was a, a talk, talk of me moving back in with my parents, which isn't really an option because my, my dad is also a, a, a has suffered um, brain injury as a result of a, a brain tumour about 10 years ago. He was all, all, all also operated on in Salford to remove a brain tumour. So he is quite a, has quite um, complex needs himself. So for me to move back in with my parents would have been very difficult for my mum to contend with. Um, so that was very quickly kind of di- excluded as, a, as an option. I could have moved in with my sister, but she's 120 miles away. So that would have meant me not seeing my daughter or friends and, and my partner. My partner basically just stepped into the breach and said, I- I'll do it. She agreed to move in with me and lock, stock and barrel uh, over a weekend. She moved in and moved herself and her 15-year-old daughter, or 14 she was at the time, in to make sure that I was able to come home. And here's Andrew with his advice to stroke survivors and their loved ones. Advice for a stroke survivor, I think the idea of, of starting the um, the rehabilitation immediately and obsessing about it as well, because, you know, as long as you're given the opportunity, either whether it be, you know, your workplace, whether if they're supportive and they allow you to focus on your recovery, then that's what you absolutely have to do. You have to 100% focus on the recovery, almost at the expense of, of everything else. So, you know, obsess about the exercises that you're given by the the, the physio or the occupational health team. Absolutely obsess about it because unless you do your homework, you're not going to, you're just not going to get better. You know, that it's all about this neuroplasticity thing that the, physios talk about is rewiring the brain and, and teaching the brain and it's a bit like a, a a baby learning to walk you know that they don't learn to walk automatically you have to keep practicing and so that's what i'm doing i'm practicing I'm, I'm it's almost like my arm and hand have been reborn and i'm practicing how to use them again and so it, it's about taking that advice from the um the medical staff but also taking help from the people that are there to support you so not not be too proud about the fact that you can't look after yourself anymore can't do things for yourself anymore take that help you know fatigue's a big factor in stroke you know the stroke symptoms being able to to do things normally is is not it's not just not an option so you have to take help you have to take that um support yeah so that that's probably the my advice for for sufferers or, or survivors of stroke and just keep at it. You know, it's a long process. It's not going to happen overnight. And even if it feels like you're not seeing any improvement or progress, there is. And it's just sometimes it's just hard to to notice the progress. 
but then for for people uh, helping and supporting a a survivor of stroke, I think it's just I guess just patience. So it's a really frustrating thing to to go through, and sometimes you're you, it, it affects your behaviour, it affects your state of mind, and it, and it can change the dynamic between people you know, the relationships that you have with either a loved one or, or friends or, or you know, colleagues or whatever, it can change that dy- dynamic because you're not the person that you were. You're suddenly much more dependent and particularly somebody young like myself who was, I was the person helping other people. I, I was the person that other people depended on and suddenly that dynamic shifts and you're now depending on the people that you used to help. Um, it, it's, it's quite a fundamental shift. And so it, it, I think patience is the first thing, uh, but also to, to allow the stroke survivor during rehabilitation to do things, even if it's going to take them all day, just let them do it, you know, because that sense of purpose is is massive. You know, when, when you feel useless and you feel like you're lacking purpose, um, even if you just do one little task in a, in a you know, a 24-hour period, it gives you that sense of purpose back. And so, yeah, to just, just you know, think of things that you can do that that person, even though they're, they're lacking in mobility or lacking in capability, there'll be a handful of things that, that you can give to them to do that isn't going to hurt them, that isn't going to tie them out too much, but it'll just give them that sense of purpose and, and that they'll feel in, that they're involved in their own lives and that they're not not doing everything you know that they're not having everything done for them, and uh, that that's a, a really big thing. And it, it it's as much, I think, recovery is as much about your mental state as it is about your physical state. Because without that motivation and without that um, tenacity to, to to get on and, and focus and and do the things that you need to do and keep doing them and keep doing them again, um, it, you'll you'll not get anywhere. And so people around you need to to be aware of that and they need to kind of obviously be be sensible but allow um allow that person some freedoms to do things for themselves you know within reason of course like so many andrew's stroke came out of the blue but thanks to a work colleague spotting the early signs and an immense amount of support from his family and friends andrew has made a stroke recovery thank you for listening to stroke stories Please do rate and comment on the episodes you hear. That really does help us spread the word. And if you are or you know of a stroke survivor and there's a story you can share, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us via Twitter or Instagram. Our DMs are always open. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening.